0: Paul McCartney Archive Podcast. Hey everybody, we are back with the complete Paul McCartney Archive Podcast. This is Wings Wildlife, recorded July through August 1971, actually just in a matter of days at Abbey Road Studios in London, and released four months later on December 7th, 1971. I have mixed feelings about this one, Chris. Yeah, me too. I think
1: everybody does. We, we could even refer to it as the much maligned Wings Wildlife.
0: Not many people are a huge fan of this record, and we will see why as we dig into these tracks. There are many positive moments on this album and surrounding the album. We have the birth of Wings. We have Paul McCartney having another kid somewhere in there. And there's just a lot of material to go through outside of just the record.
1: That's right. We also have a string of singles in 1972, and all of this has an air of defiance about it. There seems to be something out of step with McCartney's choices at this time, Wings Wildlife itself being an underwhelming album, an underwhelming effort from the point of view of a lot of critics and fans, and then a series of singles, uh, three singles, each of which managed to be controversial for one reason or another.
0: Yeah, Paul's getting in a lot of trouble at this point in time. I mean, you're referring to give Ireland back to the Irish. That's right. And also, hi, hi, hi. But probably also, Mary Had a Little Lamb, which we'll dig into.
1: Yes, we could introduce that one as Much Maligned as well. The Much Maligned Mary Had a Little Lamb.
0: So here we are, we have a quickly recorded album, and then three or so it's kind of bizarre singles, and that's what we're going to be discussing today on the podcast.
1: I want to say some general things about Wings Wildlife. Okay. So this is an album that I have mixed feelings about, uh, as you said, but I actually like this album. I'm quite fond of it. And I think I'm able to be fond of it partly because I take it for what it is. It's a modest effort. Much in the same way as the album McCartney, it's a modest effort. It isn't trying to be anything grandiose. And it succeeds, I think, on its own terms.
0: I think this will be the first podcast where you and I are sort of out of step. And I think it's going to create some interesting back and forth. I think the A side to this album is just a load of trash but the B-side is actually pretty fun.
1: The B-side of Wings Wildlife is sort of a proto-Wings album. It has many of the qualities that we'll see on uh, Red Rose Speedway, on even Venus and Mars. It even has some of the sound of those uh, later albums. The songs are good. They're solid songs. Yeah. A lot of Wings Wildlife's bad reputation rests on, as you say, side one.
0: Yeah, side A, it kind of set the tone after... I mean, the poor publicity of Ram, which is unfortunate, as we had discussed. So Paul comes back after having recorded and put his blood, sweat, and tears in that album in fine studios, spending a lot of money, doing a lot of promotion, recording an album really, really quickly because Bob Dylan, a.k.a. Robert Zimmerman, did the same thing. I believe that was his album New Morning, Well, wasn't the
1: album Please Please Me recorded in one day? Yeah. In a 14-hour session? So the Bob Dylan connection's been blown up a little too much. I mean, he did say that. McCartney did say that in an interview. But he's also just trying to get back to what he was doing with, well, the Get Back Sessions, which was itself trying to get back to, hey, let's make a record in like a day. Let's record live. You're right. I think that's what Wings Wildlife is, too. Let's get a new band together. Let's make a record in a few days. We got some time booked. Let's go in. Let's get to know each other. They spent three days rehearsing, right, on the farm in Scotland? Yep. And then three days in the studio at at Abbey Road recording Wings Wildlife, right?
0: Boom. Done. It's over. And that band was, so it was Paul, Linda McCartney on keyboards and background vocals, Denny Lane, on guitars and sort of whatever Paul wanted him to do. And then it was Denny Thywell, our old friend from the drummer on Ram. The
1: very fine drummer from Ram.
0: Amazing. As we go through the track list and kind of discuss these songs, you realize how great of a drummer he really was. All these little anecdotes about how he was a guy who could play any style and just nail things very quickly. And it you know, in the defense of Wings Wildlife, he does. It's on the record. It's he's very good. He he just nails the reggae style. I did a whole ton of research on just what was going on historically at this time because I like don't like this album so much. So I'm gonna just jump into that. Please. And then Chris, if you have anything, please just tell me to shut the hell up. Go for it. So mid-September uh seventy seventy-one Linda went into labor and was taken to King's College Hospital in Southwark. This is in England. Paul is pacing the halls. He's nervous. He doesn't know what's going on. At the time, he had come up with a couple names for his band that he had already propositioned his wife to be in, his amateur musician wife, Linda McCartney. The Dazzlers was one name, and the other, Turpentine. Turpentine. It's a pretty good name. It's a pretty good name. Like, can you imagine... Turpentine, listen to what the man said. Turpentine, <laughs> silly love songs. <laughs> you
1: know? I could imagine Turpentine, soily though.
0: Turpentine, soily. Turpentine, High, 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 Turpentine, Get on the Right Thing. Those would be great singles to have, wouldn't they? Yeah. However, that is not what history decreed. And we have the angel's wings that Paul saw in the waiting room. And that was the inspiration behind the band name Wings. There it is. There you have it. So Paul, as he is, he, he wanted a foil somebody to bounce ideas back off of and sing harmonies with. So at the time, Denny Lane was penniless, former lead singer of the Moody Blues, penniless and sleeping on an old mattress in the back room of his manager's office, uh, the guy named Tony Secunda. So that, his, that office was in Mayfair. Paul rings him up, hey man, I remember you from Go Now. I think that the Beatles had like played together at some point in 63 or 64. Lane, who had been drifting about after that band, he went to Spain. Uh, He lived with gypsies. He learned how to play the flamenco guitar. He was just, you know, the definition of an artist in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. Paul rings him up, hey man, you want to be my band? I mean, what other option do you think he had? Probably none. And it
1: cannot have been an unattractive option to be in a band with Paul McCartney.
0: Alan Parsons is involved in this record of Dark Side of the Moon fame by Pink Floyd. Many know him. That's probably his most famous work, aside from his fantastic singles and solo career as well. Um, This is kind of his entry point into the McCartney world. A quote I pulled from him is like, I was so excited to be working with Paul, but I did feel a certain lack of precision. Paul goes on to say, Coming off the back of taking a long time over records, obviously in reference to Ram, says Paul, It just seemed like an interesting idea to do a record quickly. They went into the studio with a clutch of songs, some finished already, as we know from our study on Ram. Songs like Tomorrow, Some People Never Know, others were just sort of made up. Like Mumbo. And you can hear that on the recordings for sure. Mumbo was
1: barely made
0: up. So how about I think this is a good entry point. I think we covered a lot of ground here. Let's jump right into the top A1 of Wings Wildlife, Mumbo. Okay.
1: You know, this song sounds angry to me. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just silly. Maybe it's just hard rock. But I'm going to go and, you know, go with my interpretation of some of this stuff, despite McCartney's protests to the contrary. Yeah. It sounds defiant. It sounds very defiant. Here we have the first song on the first album by a new band, and we get an angry-sounding vocal with nonsense lyrics and blues changes as as underwhelming a beginning as you could possibly have no lyrics these aren't even nonsense lyrics mccartney can write some very fine nonsense lyrics as a matter of fact these aren't even nonsense lyrics this is more like scat Ooh,
2: when I'm
0: thing I found fascinating about this, and I had no clue. I've never done any digging on this record at all whatsoever. The Take It, Tony, Paul proclaims right at the top of the track, is actually him giving an instruction to Tony Clark, the engineer, who actually coincidentally produced the Moody Blues, but after Denny Lane was involved with them. Take It, Tony, They had been jamming in the studio. They'd been playing whatever chords those are. Alan Parsons and Tony are looking at each other and like, we got to flip, we got to hit play and record here. We got to hit the button. They did right before Paul said that. So the vibe in the studio was so high from this instrumental they were doing. Everybody felt it. Boom.
1: So, what do you think of my interpretation? Is it not angry? Is it really just fooling around? He's a, he's mad. Is it is it not? In, is it nice? Sounds like a big middle finger to all the all those Beatles expectations.
0: Chris, honestly, I've never thought of it that way. And when you put it in that light, I not only agree with you, but it it, it makes the track a little bit more endearing to me. Right? <laughs> you're you're reframing it for me. And yeah, Paul had recorded Ram. George Martin did orchestrations. All of it. I mean, we listen to the other podcast, everybody. He did a lot of work on it. We did a lot of work on that podcast. He, they, they were exhausted. And Paul is like, you know what? I'm going to play the bass and I'm going to yell a bunch. I'm going to overdub some guitars, take it or leave it. That's it. Middle fingers up, right? Right.
1: We're, and we're going to capture a, a groovy vibe in the studio and it is what it is. And so it's just a kind of a, a kind of a very loose document of the birth of a band. Yeah. And I like the idea that, that the composer of Eleanor Rigby is singing this kind of angry. It really has a fuck you sound to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) The first thing he says, you know, and he's on a blue note, he comes in on a blue note going. "Eh." You know, it's really
0: pretty defiant. Yeah, whatever the hell he's doing. Yeah,
1: I think of this song, this song and the title track as kind of proto-punk, actually. I'm into that. I'm way into that. It's got that spontaneous DIY feeling to it. it doesn't matter if it makes sense. It, it's really about the gesture as much as the precise content of the lyrics. Another thing I'll say in defense of both Mumbo and Bip Bop, the next track we'll be getting to, is, you know, we, we're okay with McCartney's instrumental tracks, so why are we giving him such a hard time for not coming up with detailed lyrics on a couple of tracks on this album? Why would we give him a hard time? You can see I've constructed some elaborate rationales to, to allow You're myself great job. to Great like it.
0: Good work, I those. <laughs> Good stuff.
1: But really, we're okay with Cufflink, more or less, right? Yeah, I like Cufflink. From London town, right? Why is having partial lyrics worse, or quasi-lyrics worse than having no lyrics? Well,
0: it sounds like it's a rhetorical question, but I'll answer it. He's trying to communicate, and you're, ex- oh, he's communicating, here we go. And then you're getting nothing. It is a fuck you. Because when you have a song like Junk, yeah. or you have a song like Mother Nature's Son off of the White Album, like, oh, these are very... Nice, pastoral images, details. And then he's just singing whip-wop, woman-wop, or whatever it is. In Bip-Bop. Wim and yeah. Well,
1: maybe we should move on to Bip-Bop.
0: Sure. Now that you mention it. Sure. Uh, Trevor Horn, the guy that produced um, Video Killed the Radio Star... And many, many other things. Uh, Yes's uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart, that whole album. I I can't remember the title of that album. Um, He actually told Paul that he loved this song, Hip Hop.
1: an endearing song. It's produced a little differently, but it's one of those songs.
0: Hey Diddle, Calico Skies, Mama's Little Girl, Great Day, even Ram. Mm-hmm, right.
1: It's one of these little sort of nursery rhyme songs written probably with the kids right there, probably for the kids, in this case with the kid's input, right? He got spit-bop from his, his daughter, right?
0: That's right. Reminds me of like Dance Tonight or... Put it there. Or what else? There's another one. I uh, had it on the tip of my t- I'm carrying off of London Town. These ones where Paul's just sitting around, like you just said, with his wife and his kids, playing something, and then there's a song. Right. It sounds like baby talk. Bip bop, bip bom bop, bip
1: bop, bip bom bam. Well, Paul has commented on talking with the kids when they're toddlers in their own nonsense language and just going back and forth with them in nonsense. And that's what Bip Bop's about. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I will say that, you know, of the songs we were listing there, Bip Bop is probably the silliest. The lyrics don't really don't make it. Great Day makes, makes sense. Mama's Little Girl makes sense. Bip Bop doesn't really make any sense. Take me hair and curlers, treat me like a man. Yeah. He's, you know, making up stuff on the spot, and it's one of those songs that also seems to have been partially conceived with the singing style in mind.
0: Yeah. Because yeah. there
1: is, you know, the, you know the video, right, of him singing Bip Bop and Hey Diddle, just sitting on the grass with Linda yes. and the kids. Yeah, yeah,
0: That was like the... Right. Wingspan. And he's...
1: Yeah, that's, I think that's from 70, actually, um, and... He's already singing bop in that same style that he'll use on Wings Wildlife with the string with bibbop, bop with that kind of uh, cartoonish voice. Yeah,
2: bibbombop, bibbombop, bibbombam. Treat me like a good boy, treat me like a man. <laughs> bibbop, bibbombop, bib-bom, bibbombam. <laughs>
1: He has songs like that, you know, where the singing style and the lyrics, the whole thing seems to have been born together.
0: The song is bankrupt lyrically. However, the production and the music, as always tends to be the case with Paul, is very interesting. It's thoughtful. It's put together. It's a fun track. I understand why Trevor Horn digs it, because Trevor Horn's, you know, all of he's got all these slick productions and things are fading in and out. and, And Bip Bop is a slick production with that delay.
1: Yeah. yeah. Those interesting guitar sounds. That's right. Bip-bop is one of the tracks in McCartney's catalog that has been a prime target for McCartney haters. It's up there with the whoa- woe woes in My Love and a few other tracks like that that people, Ebony and I agree that, that McCartney haters love to point to. And sometimes the McCartney haters are right. In this case, I'm not so sure. McCartney himself for the longest time, pointed to it as one of his least favorite of his tracks. But I think it it has its qualities. It has its charms. ¶¶ So, Love is Strange. A cover. Kind of. Is it really a cover?
0: Well, the song was written in 1955. Um, In 1956, Mickey and Sylvia had a hit off of this song. Yeah? Uh, It had also been recorded by Bo Diddley, Buddy Holly.
1: I just listened to the Mickey and Sylvia version yesterday, and Paul omits most of the lyrics and makes up a few of his own. Let's play a little bit of the original.
2: Okay. Sweet loving,
1: I specifically wanted to play a section that has some of the lyrics that aren't included in McCartney's version. You know, the McCartney version is basically a jam, right? Yeah. And it happened to sound like Love is Strange, so they started singing Love is Strange over it. And it seems as if McCartney sort of remembered whatever he remembered. And from there, they did overdubs and treated it as though it were a, f- a full record.
0: All singing on this song is the best on the album. It's awesome. It's fantastic singing. It is awesome. This is the only song aside from, at least for me, Tomorrow, which isn't produced that well, this is, this is a great, great recording of Paul's, and I've, I overlook it, and I don't pay attention to it, because Paul didn't write it. I'm always kind of like, eh, I'm not really interested. But it's sort of original. Like you said, yeah, he's omitting his lyrics. I think there's like a spoken word section in the Mickey and Sylvia one. It's good. It's, it's good for what it is. I think it's great. I'm glad we have it.
1: agree with your point about the vocals being great it has one of the most interesting moments of paul's career as a vocalist which is that strange moment where he says what does he say like having money in the hand and the word hand comes out with some growl on it
0: yeah like having money. yeah it's like a half-throated something it's great it's great
1: Anyway, I do think uh, "Love Is Strange" is a great vocal, and it's that's one of the one of the one of the highlights of the album, actually. Now, "Love Is Strange" was going to be a single, right? It was going to be a double A side with "I Am Your Singer."
0: Yeah, and it was canceled due to poor LP sales.
1: I don't think it would have done well as a single.
0: This is where I should have done the research on what was happening on the single side at this time, but because it was canceled, I was like, eh. What would it have gone against? Whatever it would have gone against if the record wasn't selling, it probably would not have beaten it out of top five, top 10, top 20.
2: Yeah. The word wild applies to the words you and me.
1: So moving on to the title track.
0: Inspired by a sign noticed during Paul's visit to Ambo Sali, Africa in November 1966. The sign, you know, the animals have the right of way.
1: Now this is one of the two songs on the album that I have a problem with. You'll be surprised to find out what the other one is because we haven't gotten to it yet. I find this song very boring. It's repetitive. The lyrics really are stupid. And to the point that it seems intentionally stupid. He actually says aminals at one point. The aminals in the zoo. Yeah. He says "the aminals in the zoo. You gotta be kidding me. What's he trying to do there?
0: I honestly don't know.
1: More of the mumbo, more of the mumbo fuck you, do you think?
0: M- maybe. <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I've maybe listened to this song four times in the all the years, all the couple decades I've listened to Paul McCartney. No like, kidding. Whatever.
1: It's just those same chords over and over.
0: Well, that intro, and it's such a it's a disaster because the intro is interesting. He's playing the yeah. chords. The world, belongs to the world, you and me. Like, oh, we're about to get something interesting. Nope, you get. A real boring, just like minor vamp on an organ or an electric keyboard. And then, like you said, Paul pulling terrible lyric. I mean, there's one lyric I like. the And um, the man is the top and animal too. I think that's actually where he says aminal.
1: He says aminals a few times. <laughs> the
0: man is the top <laughs> and animal too. <laughs> and it's six minutes and 38 seconds
1: long. That's the problem. We might have a good chuckle over it and move on if it were two minutes, but it goes on and on as though it were epic. So should we move on?
0: Yeah, I've got nothing else to say about that.
1: <laughs> Me neither.
0: Uh, flip the record. No, so it's the track five or track one on the B side. Some people never know. which Favorite is, song on the album. What a treat to get to this after yeah. side A. It's that much
1: sweeter after sitting through side A, right?
0: Yes. Track written in Barbados in 1969 on vacation with Linda. Um, the the track itself is just the first take of the track. Like the actual thing they built it on is just take one in the studio.
1: Now this is a song that was written during the Ram demos, right?
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: So we're back in Ram. We're once again we're digging into that Ram territory. And you can feel it.
0: This could have easily fit on Ram. It could have fit on the White Album. It could have been on McCartney, for that matter. It could have been on Red Rose Speedway. It could have been on London Town. Like, it's a a nice song. It's a really good song.
1: You, You could maybe criticize it for being a little overlong, but I don't mind it. It gets into a really nice groove there in the last few minutes. I'm okay with letting it play out.
0: So here's the big green flag. It's two seconds shorter than Wildlife. It clocks in at 636 or so. I've always thought some people never know is a three-minute song. And I've always in my head been like, Wildlife is ten minutes long. It just goes to show that time is relative, depending upon the content yeah. of what you're consuming. It's
1: true, some people never know such a treat. It does kind of fly by. I didn't know it was as long as wildlife till you pointed that out. Yeah. And wildlife feels
0: interminable. And there's like a lot of little studio trickery in there. There's like a whole section where Paul's... It sounds like his voice is just dipped down. That's right. But what you're hearing is like Paul on the basic track singing along. It's like the scratch vocal that was just sort of hanging on, uh, hanging in on the track. Yeah, let's
1: play a little bit. I think the idea there was to just showcase the beautiful, lush background vocals for, for a, a, a turn. Sure. But let's play a little bit of that. And if, if the listeners really listen closely, they can hear... McCartney singing the lead vocal. Mm-hmm. Some People Never Know, one of the great tracks on the album and one of the great early solo McCartney tracks, too. That's right. It has a, uh, what is it? It's a plastic pipe that the Denny Sywell is, is using to get a kind of a harmonic series.
0: Yeah, a two-foot-long a two tube that, that Paul bought down on Oxford Street. And it's, you know, if you've, I'm, maybe everybody hasn't, but I certainly have. You take one of these tubes and you swing them around and it emits a tone It's whistling against the wind. Or the air, rather.
1: You actually hear the harmonics here. The overtone series pops out as you change speeds.
0: I always thought that that was just a bizarre little synthesizer that they're like, oh, we'll throw a little synth on at the end. But nope, it's a two-foot tube.
1: also got some great percussion in the last couple minutes there when the groove kicks in and we already mentioned it but some of the best background vocals on the album i guess the best background vocals on the album and on a par with some
0: of the best moments of ram so i'm just going to read a verse from this song some people can sleep at nighttime believing that love is a lie i'm only a person like you love and who in the world can be right all the right time I know I was wrong. Make me right. Right. And I read the last "right" as like a "right" with a question mark, like "right," like "right," you
1: know, or or a sort of an "a," right, right, right. Well, I I have to admit I always heard it as an underlining of the first "right," but I actually like your your question mark. So if it's really a question to John,
0: maybe. Yeah, this could be an answer to everything John had been saying, right?
1: Well, now we know for sure that it's not a, an answer to how do you sleep? Because it's very tempting to read that some people can sleep at nighttime as an explicit response to John's song, How Do You Sleep?, which is an outright attack on McCartney. But the dates don't work out, right? It can't be a response to how do you sleep. No,
0: it doesn't work but out. But it could,
1: it could still be part of the side two of Wings Wildlife peace offering to John.
0: It probably was a thought. Because I mean, they were still fighting with each other publicly in print, various interviews, and John was like writing letters to publications attacking Paul for various reasons. I'd never thought of that, though. I'd, I'd never even put this together. Some people can sleep at nighttime. How do you sleep? I can see how people draw that conclusion.
1: The underlining of, of the word right there also strikes me as hearkening back to the we believe that we can't be wrong from the backseat of my car on Ram. Yes. That same sort of Paul and Linda against the world feeling.
0: Get on the right the thing. The entire
1: song is a kind of Paul and Linda against the world.
0: No more lonely nights. I know what I feel to be right. Yeah, Paul thinks he's right all the time. And it comes out in a lot of these lyrics.
1: So we agree it's a, it's a great song. Some people never know. Correct. One of the highlights of the album, for sure.
2: You are my love. You are my song. You are my song, I am your singer You are my one You are my own melody You are my song, I am your singer Someday
1: What about I Am Your Singer, the next track?
0: As we had mentioned, uh, planned to be the B-side for the single for the record, which was Love is Strange, but canceled. This is the song Alan Parsons mixed and handed to Paul. and was like, hey, take a listen to this. And Paul loved it. And that is the mix that made the record. Alan Parsons, in all the accounts I read, was very proud of himself for that.
1: It's a beautiful mix.
0: And very wing-sounding. Very very dry and close-miked. You could credit... Parsons for helping to develop the wing sound, especially if this was a mix Paul liked. And I know I'm almost positive he worked on Country Dreamer and a few other things that uh, ended up as B-sides. I Lie Around, B-side to Live and Let Die. So Alan Parsons kind of early on making a stamp, maybe shaping what Wings ended up becoming. Another interesting point on this record is the recorder solo that some accounts say Paul played. Um, Tony Clark, the same Tony Clark from Mumbo, says it's the Dolomesh family playing a series of recorders, so.
1: My ear tells me it's the latter. It's too professional sounding to be Paul. It, It really sounds like professional recorder players.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: I mean, the intonation is dead on. They sustain the notes perfectly. Paul's good at any instrument he picks up, but not like this. I mean, this really sounds very pro. is a duet with linda and paul's very good at getting getting the best out of linda i, I think she drags this track down a little bit though
0: yeah it's not it's not great linda's parts are not great they're good well she she sounds like an amateur
1: you know she's singing right next to paul mccartney she would probably sound like an amateur next to an amateur at this stage she's really a beginner yeah. But she's singing right next to one of the greatest voices in rock and roll, and it underlines her amateurishness. Her sure. intonation's shaky, and she sounds very timid. However, one thing I'll say about the vocals on this track, we we commented on the album Ram, especially with Dear Boy, what a great job Paul does of blending his voice with Linda's and imbuing the vocals with Linda's vocal qualities while himself really providing... All the substance, you know, mm-hmm. just mix, mixing his voice with Linda's. And he does that on this track as well during the unison parts. He really, it sounds a lot like it's really Linda's vocal tone that we're hearing, but Paul's providing scaffolding with intonation and, and sort of uh, reinforcement. He does that a lot in the Beatles. A really good example of that is Every Little Thing. It's a John song, of course. But John and Paul sing it in unison. The sound of the track is entirely John's voice. It's John's timbre that we're hearing. Paul's singing along with him in unison and backing up, basically reinforcing every note so that John's intonation can be a little shaky and expressive, so that John's voice can get a little hoarse, he can get a little gravelly in places, but Paul's always there providing solid scaffolding in terms of intonation and tonal reinforcement let's, in fact let's hear a quick example yeah
2: when I'm with her I'm happy just to know that she loves me yes I know that she loves me now there is one thing I'm sure of I will love her forever
1: So I Am Your Singer, it's a well-constructed song. This is a song from the Ram demo sessions, right? Yes. Yeah, so this is another summer 1970 song. So even after the two episodes on Ram were not done with these summer 1970 songs. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That I mean, whole, that whole, this whole second side of the album is from those demos. That's right. I've always regretted that we don't have a version of I Am Your Singer with just Paul, though.
0: I, I'm always just bogged down by the Linda parts. And yeah. e- even the recorder part, I was like, whoa, hey now, where did that come from?
1: Yeah, it's, I wish the record were as good as the song, but it is a problematic record.
0: If it was just a Paul and a guitar singing in that same goodbye style voice, just the song.
1: I actually, other than the recorder, like the arrangement, like the instrumentation. It's a nice little soft rock sort of track.
0: Yeah, the B section, I'm, it, where it kicks in. You're right. Sing, singing my love song to you, or whatever it is. I don't love the lyrics. It's better than everything on the A-side, I'll say that.
1: Okay. I agree. So that brings us to Bip-Bop Link, I guess? little instrumental track?
0: Yeah, it just sounds like him fooling around with the concept of Bip-Bop.
1: That's right. It's a. Uh, it's like those White Album Links. And that finally brings us to Tomorrow, another of the highlights, another of the really strong songs on the album.
2: Great song.
0: Paul liked this song so much that in 1974 or 1975, which would be what? Venus and Mars? Must have been Mm -hmm. Venus and Mars. Attempted an instrumental version of the song where the, the Moog synthesizer is playing the main melody line. I have the recording and I'm going to request that we play it now, despite it being probably a bootleg. So this I mean that, at least that little section of it illustrates how great of a composition the song is and how powerful the melody was oh,
2: baby, don't you let me down tomorrow through Do the week we back and steal and
0: So tomorrow it's a great track, it's a fun lyric. Doesn't say much, just sort of like a summer fun song. A fun little time signature change at the end. That's right.
1: Yeah. Goes to a three.
0: And what a false ending? I think there's like a little fake false ending on it. (laughs) That's right,
1: there's a there's a false ending. Now you mentioned the vocal earlier.
0: Yeah, it's a great it's a pretty good vocal
1: performance. It's a strange vocal. I I think it's a I mean I think the singing is good in the technical sense, but I, I think it's a little wrong for the song somehow. I'm not sure why it, I'm not sure why it needs to be that high. He sounds uncomfortable that high yeah. on this particular song.
0: Paul's father-in-law, Lee's, what is it, Lee Eastman, Linda's father, had said to Paul that this is one of his favorite compositions of Paul's that he'd ever heard. And he, he strongly urged him to re-record it and to play it slower and perhaps in a different key. He never got around to it. I think you're right. The combination of the bizarre vocal strain slash performance and the fact that it's like tucked away on the back end of what could arguably be considered the worst wings album. You know, this is one of those little gems that just needed to have been dusted off and re recorded or reproduced, but so it goes. Not so. It
1: is what it is. Three days, three days. So that brings us to Dear Friend, and this, I'm going to surprise you here, Okay. along with Wings Wildlife, is the other obnoxious song on the album to me. Wow. I, I, I will take Mumbo over Dear Friend. Why is that? <laughs> I think it's precious, it's repetitive, it tries to build a non-song up into a big orchestral arrangement, it lasts way too long the vocal is cloying or something. Dear friend, what's the time? It's, I know it's supposed to be a peace offering to John, an explicit one, but it seems annoying to me.
0: It's a non-song. It's not much of a song. The best part is, like you said, it's like the orchestral build-up, and it's the same guy that did Thrillington that scored that. Come with those, like, kind of ropey saxophone. The sax and the trumpets. Yeah, it's a good arrangement. That's the only thing I get out of it. It's another long one, too. It's 547. Well,
1: that's my, yeah, that's my complaint. There's not enough substance for 547 there.
0: Is this really the borderline, John? You know, I'm in love with a friend of mine. Talking about Linda. He's, he's apologizing, but he sort of is not also, if you re-listen to the lyrics.
1: Does it really mean that much to you? Does it
0: mean that much to you? It's like... Yeah. Passive-aggressive.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a peace offering, but kind of a, a false one.
0: So this long apology to John, sort of apology is what wraps up the album it's a quick eight tracks
1: well there is the the mumbo outro they took a chunk of of a mumbo outtake and that's the
0: actual end of the album right I guess this just illustrates how quickly I want to be done with this record because it's it's like the highs they're fun but they don't get that high and the lows yeah, you have the mumbo outro, which is this let's, like...
1: Let's play a little bit of the mumbo outro, and this is the end of Wildlife. Yeah. Here it comes.
0: So that concludes Wings Wildlife. So around this time, uh, when they were preparing to release the album, Paul wanted to organize a party at the Empire Ballroom. It happened on December 8th, 71. This was Paul trying to re-engage with the music industry. Paul and Linda threw this large party at this ballroom in, uh, in the middle of England, in the middle of London, rather. And the bash was such a big deal for the McCartneys that Paul hand-wrote every one of the 800 invitations. Paul showed up to this party. His suit that he was meant to wear was unfinished. It still had the stitching in it, but he wore it anyway. And everybody was coming up to him like, hey man, your suit's not finished. And he's like, yeah, cool, isn't it? (laughs) So it's this unfinished suit, sort of an unfinished album. It's just the vibe of the time. But the positive that we got out of it is it's the thing that kickstarted Wings Denny Lane, who appears for the first time in this album, is with Paul. Actually, throughout the entire rest of the 70s and even into the early 80s, he shows up on Tug of War, I believe a few tracks on Pipes of Peace. Wings goes on to be one of the most successful touring acts of the 70s, certainly the most commercially successful product from the Beatles brand. John and George and Ringo never matched that type of touring ability or potential. In terms of sales, by Beatles standards at least, this album bombed. And uh, as we have mentioned previously, EMI canceled the release of the proposed double A-side single. I had said B-side earlier, but it was meant to be a double A-side of Love is Strange and I Am Your Singer. Paul has stated that he likes the record, but has conceded that it perhaps was not as good as some of the others. (laughs) The press Well, you know, obviously we're brutal on him. This is a couple of quotes. One source had said the best song was not even written by Paul McCartney in reference to Love is Strange. Uh, Rolling Stone, January 20th, 1972, states, wildlife is largely high on sentiment, but rather flaccid musically and impotent lyrically, trivial and unaffecting. However, John Lennon states, I quite enjoyed it. I think Paul is going in the right direction. That comment was made February of 1972. Imagine was out. Who knows if Lennon is being sarcastic or not. I could imagine John liking
1: the stripped-down
0: quality of it. Despite all of this, the album went to number 8 in the U.S. charts and cracked the top 20 at number 11 in the U.K. charts and ultimately was certified gold. So that's the goodwill of having been in the Beatles and having had moderate success with the McCartney album, McCartney one that wraps up sort of everything I have to say about wildlife. We do have a few singles lying around. If you want to dig into those, we have a few singles
1: and it might be, since you mentioned John, it might be a good moment to catch up with John.
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: Well, we're going into 1972 here. We've discussed previously that 70 and 71 were a very fertile time for the solo Beatles. John, having released a very successful and beautifully produced album in Imagine, uh, released toward the end of 71, came back in 72 with one of his least regarded albums, So we really have back-to-back here uh, Wings Wildlife from Paul, very poorly regarded album, followed by Sometime in New York City by John Lennon and Yoko Ono, also a very poorly regarded album.
0: Angela is on that, and
1: then... Angela and Woman is the Nigger of the World and Luck of the Irish and Sunday Bloody Sunday. It's actually a pretty good album. ¶¶ sort of like Wings Wildlife in that it's harshly judged because half of it is bad and half of it is flawed. In the case of Wings Wildlife, you have the, the problematic side A, then the flawed but interesting side two. In the case of Sometime in New York City, you have a pretty, pretty thoroughly at least produced studio album accompanied by a second disc of live material. And the live material will test the patience of the most devoted John Lennon fan. I love John. I can sit through almost anything by John. I can sit through two virgins, for Christ's sake. But disc two of Sometime in New York City really does test my patience a bit. This one, however, is quite good. It's a fine John Lennon album. One thing I'll say about Sometime in New York City is that I don't have much of a Yoko allergy, generally speaking. I can sit straight through Double Fantasy or Milk and Honey and not have huge complaints. I don't dislike Yoko, and I'm okay with her tracks, generally. So Sometime in New York City's okay with me. It's a collaboration between the two of them. She wrote about half the songs and collaborated with John on some of the songs. And because I don't have a Yoko allergy, that album is r- reasonably strong from my point of view. But I think most people have a Yoko allergy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, uh, certainly. Yeah, and so that album just automatically loses about two stars, you know, because it's half Yoko. Anyway, I think it's an underrated album, and it. Rem- I think these albums have that in common, Wings Wildlife and Sometime in New York City, that they're a, a little underrated, or maybe they're they're not judged on their own terms. Like I was saying earlier with Wings Wildlife, if you take it on its own terms, it works fairly well as a modest effort. And Sometime in New York City, as a kind of a bold political statement, works pretty well on its own terms. If you're looking for Imagine the sequel, you're not going to get it. As as an ambitious album, in some respects, it works pretty well Sometime in New York City.
0: And just a brief aside, I don't want to dwell on this because, I mean, we have hip-hop music now and other... Forms of music where the N word is used liberally, like liberally, liberally. John Lennon in '72, bringing that word out for what was a single off of the album, and John is being controversial, maybe even for the sake of being controversial. But what he's saying in that song is is very—it's not clever. Clever is too flimsy of a word. <laughs>
2: of the world Yes, she is Think about No one is the leader of the world Think about it Do something about it Like, he's showing
0: everybody, maybe we don't treat women as well as we should Maybe we have pushed them down a bit in society. And he's, I I think it's interesting. Had that been a Beatles single or had the goodwill of the Beatles as the Beatles and not just the ephemeral will because it was a solo record? Like the Beatles released that record. It may have been a bigger song than it was instead of just this footnote. Because John's vocal performance. It's a pretty good song. Oh, it's a great song. And, and it's vocal a big performance, production. It's yeah, one of it's, those
1: big Phil Spector sounding, well, it's Phil Spector. It's a big sounding production.
0: Yeah, it's just tarnished by this word, the one word. If you can ignore the word, if you can find the song, if you can't tolerate the word or if you never listen well, to the song. You shouldn't
1: ignore the word. It's the point of the song.
0: Well, I'm just saying for the listeners that maybe have avoided it because of that word. Pull it up. You've got Kanye West and Jay-Z. Every other word is that word now. Like <laughs> To
1: say nothing of Quentin Tarantino, right?
0: That could require books and a debate and a whole series of other things. But just listen to this song for the music. Just listen to the music.
1: Uh, So we're going into 1972, and there's nothing from George in 72. And we have Sometime in New York City from John in 72. So speaking of Sometime in New York, that makes a transition of sorts back to Paul. John has actually two songs in response to Bloody Sunday, the massacre in Ireland that Paul also responded to with Give Ireland Back to the Irish. So why don't we back up and go back to early 1972 and address Give Ireland Back to the Irish.
0: So on January 30th, 1972, Bloody Sunday occurs, um, also referred to as the Bogside Massacre. It's a horrible thing happened in the Bogside area of Derry, Northern Ireland, where British soldiers shot 26 unarmed civilians. So Paul rushes to the studio February 1st, 2nd, and 4th of 72. The Abbey Road, or Apple Studios, they're not certain which, and recorded Give Ireland Back to the Irish. Paul opposing this event, Glyn Johns mixed the track, which was ultimately banned by the BBC. It made it all the way to number 16 in the UK before being banned and 21 in the US, Denny Lane didn't love this track, despite Paul loving it and actually wanting it to reappear on Wingspan. But the label said at the time, sorry, man, we can't put this on because there was some sort of terrorist attack in London that year or the previous year. That's right. Yeah. The single was released February 25th, 1972 in the UK and the 28th in the U.S., and the B-side was just an instrumental version of the same track.
2: Stop by Irish soldiers. Would you lie down? Do nothing. Would you give me a fancy?
0: Wildlife was one of the first albums I got in high school. All album. It was like all the best. And then Band on the Run and Ram. And then it was a Wildlife and Red Row Speedway at the same time. Wow,
1: um, very similar for me, actually. Yeah. And Uh, and, and especially the part about Wildlife and Red Row Speedway at the same time.
0: Yeah, It makes sense, though, right? They're kind of...
1: Yeah, that's great if you're lucky enough to get them at the same time, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's like getting a double album or almost a triple album. But so, the I believe, are they Parlophone reissues? It was in 93, 91?
1: That's right, the Parlophone, yeah.
0: So this was one of the first... Like way back, like in the late 90s, I heard this song and I thought it was great. And I didn't I didn't know what Bloody Sunday was. I think it's a it's a great song. And it's another instance like Oh Woman, Oh Why, I'll Give You a Ring. I could go on and on where singles or these B-sides that were deleted or banned, they're better than the whole album that they came around. Like, I'll take this song over everything on Wildlife.
1: Really? Really? You would oh. take this song over Some People Never Know?
0: Yes. It's rocking. It's up-tempo. Huh. Paul actually has an opinion about something that's relevant to the world for the, like maybe the first time. And there are these stories of them recording it at Abbey Road Studios, and you could hear it for blocks, like just how loud the band was playing. Wow. It's Paul with intensity on a mission, upset about something. And I don't think we got enough of that from his solo career. It's a great vocal, for sure. It's a great you're right. It's
1: a rocking track, and it's a great vocal. I want to ask you something now. now, the high note, the high note starting in the second verse is a high d. We know he can sing even higher notes than that, and he actually is a little hit or miss with that high d in this song. yeah, but is is this, do you think, Ryan, the first appearance of the trademark McCartney two octave vocal where he sings the he sings it an octave down in the first verse and then for the second verse on bumps it up an octave.
0: It is, we
2: isn't both, it?
1: We both love that, right? I and love that trick. I, That's such a great trick. Yeah. I think this is it, yeah. I think it is. So we get the first verse an octave down, and then from then on out, an octave up.
0: The tone that he has in both of those ranges of his voice. So March 1972, Paul goes back to Olympic Studios in London to record Mary Had a Little Lamb, which was released as a single May the 12th, 1972 in the United Kingdom and May 29th in the United States. And Little Woman Love, our little b-side from the Ram Sessions, makes its appearance on the flip side of the single. I, you know, I'm, I hate to admit this, The music of Mary Had a Little Lamb is incredible. It's excellent. I I (laughs) think it's very, very good. I always thought it was a great
1: little record. I know it's, it's hated. This track is hated. I'm sorry, I think it's an excellent children's song.
0: a great children's song. If you think of it contextually this way, not that I'm apologizing for Paul, um, but so December 8th, 1877. I said that right. 1877. Thomas Edison spoke the first verse of Mary Had a Little Lamb into his newly invented machine that recorded sound. Maybe Paul's thinking that. Maybe he's not. Maybe this is a response to give Ireland back to the Irish being banned. Maybe it's not. I just know that it's, the music's great, especially at, or it's around 2.55. The track slows down a little bit. Mary loves the lamb you, you know, the teacher did reply. them seeing it like all those little flourishes just make it uh,
1: make it a fun listen I think it's a very fun listen I I never really understood why people hated it so much except that it's part of that period in 71 and 72 where you know critics love to hate McCartney and this was seen as taunting or defiant McCartney claims it was not he claims he spent a lot of his time around kids A lot of the time when he played the piano and worked on songs at home, his audience was kids. He wrote a kid's song. He thought it was a pretty good song. He recorded it simple as that. But the accounts I read, for example, from the Tom Doyle, make it sound as if the other members of Wings were pretty bemused.
0: My favorite quote from that is from Henry McCulloch, where he's like, I was coming off the road after three years in America with Joe Cocker. And I end up playing Mary Had a Little Fucking Lamb.
1: <laughs> Mary Had a Little Fucking Lamb. Exactly. And I can, I can see his point of view. And to some extent, I can see the critics or, or hating public's point of view. I happen to think it's a fine song. The, uh, the lyrics are good enough. And, <laughs> you know, and the music is excellent. It's well produced. It's well sung. You got the kids joining in. It sounds very unpretentious. I have no problem with this track.
0: Speaking of a well-sung, well-produced track, another gem was recorded March 72 at Olympic, finished off later in 1981, Mama's Little Girl, recorded uh, yes. in the same time. Not released until February 5th, 1990. 1990 as the B-side to Put It There, which is a song off of Flowers in the Dirt.
2: Better give me some time, but it's hard on mine, cause I just can't take it all in.
0: This song, intended for Red Rose Speedway, was deleted. It was meant to be played during the James Paul McCartney 1973 television special, left on the cutting room floor. This track, out Cold of cuts. all of the tracks, I know I had a lot to say about "Give Ireland Back to the Irish," but this is the one for me. This, th- I just don't get how this never made it onto a record at this time.
1: It's very beautiful. And it's a very fully produced record. We have clarinet parts, percussion, background vocals. It's quite a lush record. It may not have become lush until the Cold Cuts overdubs in 81. I don't know what we had in 72. I don't know what version. I've, I've heard some versions. Again, we'll just say somehow I heard some versions. <laughs> and the versions I have heard from 72 um, seem pretty similar to the 81 version, which I also heard somehow. Somehow I heard versions from 72 and 81, and I think they're pretty similar. The 81 sounds better mixed. you time, all
2: cause I just can't Still I will remember Mama's little girl. Still
1: we will remember. This is one of those perfect McCartney vocals from this period in 70 through 72. He's in that in-between place in his voice that we've referred to multiple times now on the podcast. And it's another of those children's songs, somewhat like Bip Bop or Hey Diddle. We've listed them already on this very show. And it has all the charm of those other songs. It's unpretentious great little track
0: so moving on from there november 1972 paul goes back to the studio to record hi 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 and "Sea moon hi hi high, high is the a side c moon's the b side released december 1st 1972 in the united kingdom and december 4th 1972 in the united states well
2: when i met you at-
0: of its lyrical content, namely that reference to a body gun that Paul claims is, he's actually polygon. saying polygon.
2: Well, well, take off your face recover from the trip you
1: interesting thing about paul's lyrics maybe i'm i'm agreeing with what uh, denny lane said in the quote you referenced earlier there's so much nonsense in paul's lyrics that anything goes it makes it hard to figure out what he's saying because it could be anything and i'm perfectly willing to believe that it's polygon get you ready for my polygon why not we've already got sweet banana in this very same song could be anything what do you think what's it sound like
0: I think Polygon polygon is a. a, Polygon's the better choice. If we're we're really cutting these lyrics up, Body Gun just seems lazy. But get you ready for my Polygon, and it is meant to be a dirty (laughs) lyric. It sounds to me, and when I was reading, it's just Paul made this one up in the studio. They made this record up in the studio. It's an old, basically just an old rock and roll change the whole throughout. Yeah, she'll be my funky little mama, gonna rock it, and we've only just begun. <laughs> Won't yeah, say. and just,
1: be, just begun and polygon rhyme, that's the kind of thing Paul would do.
0: We're getting high, high, high in the midday sun. Yeah, it's, yeah. he, it's, you see this a lot with Paul. The music's good, it's got a nice pulsing bass line. A lot of good slide guitar work. The track sounds great.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Was that the intro I should have been in? Oh, no. Sea moon, sea moon. She The
0: flip side of that bad boy is Sea Moon, recorded at Morgan, and then finished off at Abbey Road. That one is—it's—it's it's a bizarre song because it became a hit because Hi 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 was banned or just not played by radio DJs, so they just flipped the record over. And you have this bizarre little reggae, primarily composed on a piano song, where Paul misses the intro. There are these finger symbols or, or, or a shaker or a tambourine going on and stereo panning the whole time, xylophones popping about, and really a nonsensical lyric. Well, Chris, do you want to tell, like, what does sea moon mean?
1: C-moon makes a circle. A C and a half moon is what he's talking about, right? And L-7 makes a square. An L next to a 7... Put them together, they make a square. So if you're L7, you're square. If you're C-moon, you're cool. I think that's what it means. It will be L7 and we'll never get to heaven.
0: Yeah, just a fun little jam of a tune. Fun little chords to play on the piano if you look them up or you can do it by ear. Musically complicated, not not dumb simple, but not much to the lyric. It is a very pleasant sounding track, though. And I know he plays it during sound checks still to this day.
1: It actually turns out to be a, a rather pretty song. The, the little change part, in, in fact that very part it will be L7 and we'll never get to heaven that, that's, that's very lovely and it kind of combines the reggae quality with kind of just classic almost Mary had a little lamb type McCartney ear candy. I believe but they
2: never told the daddy what their love was all about She could Never
0: was the time to let it out. all about? I always thought the song should have been called What's It All About? That's, yeah, that's
1: the tagline. Basically,
0: that's the hook. Right? What's it all about? <laughs> it's so it would be so much more Paul McCartney to me if that's what it were called.
1: I really like the cornets. Paul and Denny Sywell, both of them play trumpet and they overdubbed cornets. For a little section of the song, uh, part of the part of the chorus, basically, that's uh, it comes back as an instrumental with cornets and some delay. It's very it's very weird. I really like it.
0: That definitely set the stage for Let Him In. Yeah. You see, and we've mentioned that a lot. There are a lot of tracks. It's like, oh, well, this is in the Oh Darling vein. This is in the Calico Skies vein.
1: So we talked about Little Woman Love on our Ram podcast because that's when it was basically recorded. It was pulled out and tweaked a little bit and became the B-side for Mary Had a Little Lamb. It makes a good compliment actually to Mary Had a Little Lamb. The version that we hear on the Ram Archive is different from the actual Mary Had a Little Lamb B-side. Uh, if you want to hear the Mary Had a Little Lamb B-side, that's actually uh, an extra track on the Parlophone 1993 Wings Wildlife. So you can get the original version there. The version on the Ram Archive has different kind it's a different kind of mix and includes overdubs that are not included on the B-side of Mary Had a Little Lamb as I said, it makes for a good compliment to it's a side. Mary had a little lamb and I guess we've already otherwise discussed the track pretty much straight ahead sort of blues track.
0: Fun piano and riff that was. Basically that's right. We already ripped off. We already pound, pounded
1: the the riff. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Milt Hinton or Hilton. I'd have to check my notes.
1: Milt Hinton. That's right. On bass, upright bass.
0: It's a fun one. I I really love that song. I love that little B side, and and um, anytime I meet somebody or I have a close friend who's like, "What's a Paul McCartney record that you could recommend?" I always send him Ram, and on the deluxe reissue on Spotify. Or even if you buy the CD, Another Day, A o Woman, Oi, A Love for You, and Little Woman Love are like the first tracks on the second disc. And people are like, "Oh my God, what is that little piano song?" Oh, you know, it's just Little Woman Love.
1: So this is a problematic period for Paul McCartney. We're looking at singles that courted controversy, whether intentionally or not. We're looking at an album that remains one of McCartney's least liked. Pretty problematic. 1972.
0: You've got an album, an eight-track album with a a bunch of instrumentals, a little instrumental clips, a cover, two songs over six minutes, three songs at least hovering around the six-minute mark, and then a children's song, a protest song, a song about sex, maybe, and then two of those singles which were banned at the BBC. Strange time, but if we had not had this time, we would not have set the stage for what's coming next, Red Rose Speedway, which, you know, has problems of its own. But without all of this, everything is leading up to Band on the Run, what critics claim is Paul's best album from the 70s. It goes along with what Paul's saying, where he had to completely reinvent himself after the Beatles. He didn't want to just write Beatley things. He wanted to start from scratch. He put his wife in his band. He was purposely trying to create a new sound. Because he had already established himself as a Beatle, the public saw all of the growing pains that he was going through to get to this commercially viable, artistic, yet pop version of his craft that he hadn't done up until that point. So love it or hate it, that's Wings Wildlife.
1: I first heard this album pretty early on in my exploration of Paul McCartney as a kid. Part of the reason that I'm okay with Wings Wildlife, I guess, is precisely that. I did get it simultaneously with Red Rose Speedway, and I always understood Wings Wildlife as a prelude or a prologue of sorts. I always understood it as this is the beginning of a band, and you're going to hear it grow from here. And I think if you take it in that spirit, you can enjoy listening to it. I think these singles are all fascinating. I think this is actually a pretty fertile period for McCartney. In fact, I know it's a fertile period for McCartney. When we discuss Red Rose Speedway, we'll find out just how much McCartney really was doing in 1972. The sessions that ultimately led to Red Rose Speedway seem to be about as productive, about as bountiful as the Ram sessions. Maybe the quality's not quite as high as for Ram, but it's a lot of material. It really was a, a solid two-record set worth of material that we got out of 1972.
0: Yeah, Red Rose Speedway, I love that album.
1: So that's what we have coming up next, Red Rose Speedway. And we'll end this episode with a little more from Wings Wild Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized
2: by Ryan Brady.